Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This is the John Oakley Show podcast. You know, it's interesting because uh, Danny was just mentioning on the news a case of two individuals sentenced to nine years each for uh, a sexual assault uh, of a young woman, 24 years of age, uh, according to what uh, transpired in court by way of uh, evidence, I guess, on videotape and so on, that the uh, victim had been drugged and was visibly and significantly impaired, and the assaults took place during this impairment, and uh, therein lies the sentence of nine years in both instances. Now, there are some interesting complex issues that need to be untangled for my uh, edification as much as anything. So we've got Joe Newberger, Global News Radio legal expert with Newberger and Partners that comes in and helps sort it all out. Joe, how are you doing this afternoon? I'm great, John. How are you? Pretty good, too, though. Uh, I'm kind of curious with this nine years for both individuals, uh, what the judge ruled was seemingly sound. I mean, I wasn't there, but a lot of this was on videotape. It uh, seemed like this was the damning evidence, if I've got it right. But I think the defense was saying that only part of the assault should be considered, uh, and they felt that there might have been something to distinguish that from the rest of uh, this video transcript. I don't know how deeply uh, you got into the case, but can you tell me why they would have only submitted uh, that maybe there was only one segment that was important to it all? Um, I, I wasn't that deep into the case, but I know that they had the uh, entire video recording um, of a very significant part of the incident, and it was extremely damning. And I know the argument from at least one of the defense lawyers was there was no audio to this. So what you may be seeing to some extent at certain times is not really reflective of reality because you would have to hear what was being said as well. In particular, they are trying to assert that what you would have heard from the complainant, but now victim giving the conviction, uh, would have altered the situation from one of non-consent to consent. But on the video itself, there was a, a fair amount of evidence about the impairment and incapacity of the, of the victim in this case. So this was the key evidence in the case um, and I think that's what the uh, the jury heavily relied on. All right, uh, because as I'm reading it, there's a an account of it in the Star, and uh, the, the the bar owner, Mr. McMillan's lawyer, uh, he argued that the judge should find that the sexual assault was limited to only one portion of the night in the main area of the bar. He said in that case, a sentence of 12 months would be appropriate. But if all of this was captured on videotape, just the one actual instant uh, would have been less damning and therefore only worthy of a 12-month sentence versus the full nine years. Yeah, and, and the judge can't make that finding because the jury convicted him of a gang sexual assault. So this was a jury verdict, and um, and in this case, they, they were convicted of the most serious of the offenses. And I believe there was a, another offense for which the jury was either, I, I don't remember, either it was a not guilty verdict or they were hung on that one. But um, the most serious was the gang rape. And you can't ignore uh, the case law that goes along with a gang rape, uh, which includes the level of violence um, 
and the uh, and 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 certainly the sentencing for that is extremely high. So I, I don't see how that argument would be able to work, um, and how the judge would be able to make that determination in order to lessen the sentence. I just don't see it giving the verdict. It would be incongruent with what the jury would have found. Well, the defense also argued that this woman was uh, consensually dominated by the two guys at her own request, uh, and he dismissed that, uh, the idea that, you know, they were just obeying her commands. Right, and that, that goes back to the argument of the lawyers. I remember very specifically after the findings of guilt, uh, one of the lawyers had said, well, if it only had audio, I mean, they would be found not guilty. And so um, I can't discount that, in fact, there may be some audio that, in fact, would would assist in the defense. But you can sometimes tell from the movements and behaviors of someone and uh, what really is going on and if there is consent. And if the video shows someone who's incredibly intoxicated to the point that they are not capable of really um, having an operating mind and or being functional in any real meaningful way, then maybe regardless of what they're saying, uh, whatever decision they may or may not be making is not anywhere near consent because they are so heavily intoxicated that they are lacking the capacity to consent. But that was the argument of the lawyers that the the missing audio left out what the complainant was asking for and consenting to. Again, with Joe Newberger, Global News Radio legal expert, on another rape case, the celebrated Harvey Weinstein case. Uh, yesterday, the defense rested its case. They didn't call him to be a witness. And uh, what's the thinking there? I think that if the jury is going to get the case by Tuesday, they should be back by Tuesday evening. Um, <laughs> sorry to be flippant about it, but I mean, you know, in sex assault cases, of which you know, you know, my firm defends a lot, uh, the, the accused almost inevitably has to testify unless the case is really won on cross-examination. And, um, you know, this is un- not unlike the uh, Bill Cosby uh, situation where um, he, the, the accused was going to be facing uh, very difficult and challenging questions on cross-examination about a number of allegations, including in, in Mr. Weinstein's situation, uh, witnesses who are not actual uh, victims for the trial, for which he wasn't charged, but they were what we call similar act witnesses. And so there would be a barrage of questions that we don't think he'll be able to handle, plus um, maybe other questions related that would have been relevant, that would have exposed him even further. And um, I think that's why the judge also checked about two or three times, are you sure about that decision? Because when you're just solely relying on cross-examination, which sometimes in and of itself can do the trick, but if it doesn't, then there is no voice from the other side speaking about the issue of consent. And consent is a subjective issue within the mind of the victim uh, or the, the complainants in this case. And Mr. Harvey Weinstein would have to testify, in my opinion, in order to give his version of events as to why they are consenting. And we just the jury will not have that. That is a serious piece missing. I could comment a little bit about the other evidence they called if you wanted, but mm-hmm. but I just think this is a major flaw. Okay, uh, and the other evidence you're citing is which? Well, the defense got to call evidence, which I just will say you could never call in Canada, would be absolutely excluded. So there were friends of two of the uh, complainants who testified as to uh, how they spoke about Mr. Weinstein, uh, after what would have been the alleged events or ongoing events, how they interacted with him, 
And so there's very clear indication from our own courts in Canada that complainants or true victims of abuse act differently uh, depending upon their own psychological makeup. So you can't draw an inference that because they may still associate with the person who's abused them or uh, still want to have dinner with them or see him, that that doesn't mean that they weren't sexually assaulted uh, or that they consented to the act in question. So this evidence really would not be admissible here. I know there was evidence of a psychologist as well about memory and recantation and uh, sorry, recounting it and, and perception. That really didn't go very far at all. So all really what I see Mr. Weinstein is relying on was fairly aggressive cross-examination, some of which I think you know has a good point to it. Um, and some of the evidence that was called has some good points to it, because you can imagine an individual which is in a power situation where somebody uh, wants to advance in their career may very well want to engage with somebody in a sexual manner to be able to be pushed ahead, uh, you know, as they call it, the casting couch. That being said, it really does vitiate consent. And there's very there's so much evidence against Mr. Weinstein about having this predatorial way about uh, how he went about uh, victimizing these women. Uh, I just see this as a very overwhelming case, which, you know, he's really behind the eight ball on this one. Well, even women who weren't complaining per se, but had come forward, or they weren't the uh, complainants in this case, the plaintiffs, they came forward too and testified so that it would establish some kind of predatory behavior in the mind of the jury, I guess, or the court. That was Right, that, that's exactly correct. Right, and uh, but conversely, the defense could not use... Well, they did use in this case, but in Canada, you couldn't use uh, other people that might have established, like the roommate of one of the women who's uh, allegedly uh, been uh, raped by Weinstein. The roommate said, no, no, uh, afterwards she spoke highly of him. She seemed to really like him as a person. She would only compliment him. You're saying in Canada that would not be permitted. Well, it's not going to go very far. I mean, if you try and call witnesses who will just talk about, well, when I was in her company, she spoke very highly about Harvey Weinstein, um, you know, the probative value of that may be really quite limited simply because of the fact that um, complainants don't always behave in a manner that you think would be rational. So the, the argument is that a person wouldn't speak highly of their abuser. But then again, if you need to re- associate with this person because of your career and tarnishing him in any way, shape or form could very much ruin your career, then uh, one can imagine why the complainant would have said nice things. So I just don't think it's going to go very far. And I can see that in, you know, in Canada, for example, a judge or a jury would say there's very little probative value about that, simply because that's not how we can't determine on a common sense analysis that all victims behave in a certain way. And that way would be not to say nice things. That would be to, to not want to associate with the person. That's just not where we are in 2020. So I, I see that evidence as rather weak, um, but that's all they had. Yeah. Hey, by the way, is uh, Weinstein open to civil suits? Oh, yeah, big time. I mean, if, if these haven't been launched already, I'm sure they will be. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the damage from this, uh, you know, the complainants can argue that, you know, they've been emotionally scarred for life. Maybe there was impact on their career and other things. So he is definitely open to civil lawsuits for sexual assault. All right. And finally, I've got to ask, still with the sexual assault, this, uh, I guess it was uh, in a court earlier today, uh, the Ontario Court of Appeal, where uh, the judge is hearing a guy convicted of aggravated sexual assault in 2017. Three complainants said he didn't disclose his HIV diagnosis before the sexual encounters, uh, but did use a condom. And so uh, you've got people who are petitioning that the law 
ought not to criminalize people who use condoms uh, because there's no risk that he would have transmitted the disease. And uh, yet the Crown is saying, well, it's uh, not exactly right to, uh, you know, obviate them of any responsibility because a sexual partner is deprived of meaningful choice. In other words, uh, if you use a condom during sex but you're HIV positive, uh, do you still have a duty to disclose? Yeah, it's a a very interesting question uh, because we're at a state of science now where individuals who are well-treated, their viral loads are very low and undetectable, and when using proper protection, the chance of transmission is minimal to none. And there is a federal uh, legislation about when and why there has to be any disclosure uh, especially in circumstances where somebody is a, has a very low viral load and they're using protection. That being said, the interaction of two human beings when choosing to be with each other in a very vulnerable situation, that being sex, um, uh, consent is premised on being able to make a meaningful choice. And would the person truly consent if they knew that the other partner had a communicable disease um, that would affect them for life? Um, and even though the chance of transmission is low and, you know, sex is a dynamic act, I mean, it's not necessarily one thing that happens, um, is, is the person who is the victim of, of the, the case originally in a position to meaningfully consent uh, when they are not given this information? And um, I think it's a very difficult decision for the court, but I would fathom that regardless of of the duty to not disclose or the right not to disclose, in order to have meaningful consent and have consent to truly, you know, reflect what what human relations are and what the vulnerability is of that type of intimacy between two partners, there has to be some disclosure. You know, you you have to you have to let your your partner know uh, or the person you're with know in order for that person to make a meaningful choice. And, you know, if, if there's any type of care about that other person and the person wants to be with you, the, what's the harm to the disclosure? The person might say, oh, your viral loads are low, you're, mm. we're using a condom, so we're going to use precautions, great. So, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a good intimate discussion. I, I think really it should be on this side of caution and ensuring that um, a partner is fully informed. I, I don't think it should be withheld. That's my opinion. Well, and you know, I it's... Yeah, you know, I was just going to say, yeah. Issues, but, you know, I think it's important. Well, this is what's going to be... Uh, it was heard today before the Ontario Court of Appeal and uh, a group of HIV-AIDS organizations feeling that uh, the greater good is served by protecting the privacy of the person, you know, uh, who has tested positive, and if they use a condom, uh, nobody should know about it. They're not duty-bound to tell. That's the interesting development. So, uh, to your point, we're going to see how the court does rule. Joe, it's always a pleasure. I appreciate your... Uh, unfurling all of those three stories. Thank you. The pleasure is mine. Have a great show as usual, John. Joseph Newberger, Global News Radio legal expert with Newberger and Partners. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio.